Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins as the chapters continue and as Better Edge starts to get his head together with regard to what he's going to write. This time, his daughter Penelope is ready to help him. The question of how I am to start the story properly I have tried to settle in two ways. First, by scratching my head, which led to nothing. Second, by consulting my daughter Penelope, which has resulted in an entirely new idea. Penelope's notion is that I should set down what happened regularly day by day, beginning with the day when we got the news that Mr. Franklin Blake was expected on a visit to the house. When you come to fix your memory with a date in this way, it is wonderful what your memory will pick up for you upon that compulsion. The only difficulty is to fetch out the dates in the first place. This Penelope offers to do for me by looking into her own diary, which she was taught to keep when she was at school, and which she has gone on keeping ever since. In answer to an improvement on this notion, devised by myself, namely, that she should tell the story, instead of me, out of her own diary, Penelope observes, with a fierce look and a red face, that her journal is for her own private eye, and that no living creature shall ever know what is in it, but herself. When I inquire what this means, Penelope says, Fiddlesticks! I say, Sweethearts! Beginning, then, on Penelope's plan, I beg to mention that I was specially called one Wednesday morning into my lady's own sitting-room, the date being the 24th of May, 1848. "'Gabriel,' says my lady, "'here is news that will surprise you. "'Franklin Blake has come back from abroad.' He has been staying with his father in London, and he is coming to us tomorrow to stop till next month and keep Rachel's birthday. If I had had a hat in my hand, nothing but respect would have prevented me from throwing that hat up to the ceiling. I had not seen Mr. Franklin since he was a boy, living along with us in this house. He was, out of all sight, as I remember him, the nicest boy that ever spun a top or broke a window. Miss Rachel, who was present, and to whom I made that remark, observed, in return, that she remembered him as the most atrocious tyrant that ever tortured a doll, and the hardest driver of an exhausted little girl in string harness that England could produce. I burn with indignation, and I ache with fatigue, was the way Miss Rachel summed it up, when I think of Franklin Blake. Hearing what I now tell you, you will naturally ask how it was that Mr. Franklin should have passed all the years, from the time when he was a boy to the time when he was a man, out of his own country. I answer, because his father had the misfortune to be next heir to a dukedom, and not to be able to prove it. In two words, this was how the thing happened. My lady's eldest sister married the celebrated Mr. Blake, equally famous for his great riches and his great suit at law. How many years he went on worrying the tribunals of his country to turn out the duke in possession and to put himself in the duke's place? How many lawyers' purses he filled to bursting? And how many otherwise harmless people he set by the ears together disputing whether he was right or wrong is more by a great deal that I can reckon up. His wife died, and two of his three children died, before the tribunals could make up their minds to show him the door and take no more of his money. When it was all over, and the duke in possession was left in possession, 
Mr. Blake discovered that the only way of being even with his country for the manner in which it had treated him was not to let his country have the honor of educating his son. "'How can I trust my native institutions?' was the form in which he put it. "'After the way in which my native institutions have behaved to me!' Add to this that Mr. Blake disliked all boys, his own included, and you will admit that it could only end in one way. Master Franklin was taken from us in England, and was sent to institutions which his father could trust, in that superior country, Germany. Mr. Blake himself, you will observe, remained snug in England, to improve his fellow countrymen in the Parliament House, and to publish a statement on the subject of the Duke in possession, which has remained an unfinished statement from that day to this. "'There! Thank God, that's told! "'Neither you nor I need trouble our heads any more about Mr. Blake, Sr. "'Leave him to the dukedom, and let you and I stick to the diamond.' "'The diamond takes us back to Mr. Franklin, "'who was the innocent means of bringing that unlucky jewel into the house. "'Our nice boy didn't forget us after he went abroad. "'He wrote every now and then, sometimes to my lady, sometimes to Miss Rachel.' "'and sometimes to me. "'We had had a transaction together before he left, "'which consisted in his borrowing of me a ball of string, "'a four-bladed knife, and seven and sixpence in money, "'the color of which last I have not seen, "'and never expect to see again. "'His letters to me chiefly related to borrowing more. "'I heard, however, from my lady, "'how he got on abroad, as he grew in years and stature. "'After he had learnt what the institutions of Germany could teach him, he gave the French a turn next, and the Italians a turn after that. They made him among them a sort of universal genius, as well as I could understand it. He wrote a little, he painted a little, he sang and played and composed a little, borrowing, as I suspect, in all these cases, just as he had borrowed from me. His mother's fortune, seven hundred a year, fell to him when he came of age, and ran through him as it might be through a sieve. The more money he had, the more he wanted. There was a hole in Mr. Franklin's pocket that nothing would sew up. Wherever he went, the lively, easy way of him made him welcome. He lived here, there, and everywhere. His address, as he used to put it himself, being Post Office Europe, to be left till called for. Twice over he made up his mind to come back to England and see us, and twice over, saving your presence, some unmentionable woman stood in the way and stopped him. His third attempt succeeded, as you know already from what my lady told me. On Thursday, the 25th of May, we were to see for the first time what our nice boy had grown to be as a man. It came of good blood. He had a high courage, and he was five and twenty years of age, by our reckoning. Now you know as much of Mr. Franklin Blake as I did, before Mr. Franklin Blake came down to our house. The Thursday was as fine a summer's day as ever you saw, and my lady and Miss Rachel, not expecting Mr. Franklin till dinner time, drove out to lunch with some friends in the neighborhood. When they were gone, I went and had a look at the bedroom which had been got ready for our guest, and saw that all was straight. Then, being butler in my lady's establishment, as well as steward, at my own particular request, mind, and because it vexed me to see anybody but myself in possession of the key of the late Sir John's cellar, then, I say, I fetched up some of our famous Latour Claret, 
"'and set it in the warm summer air "'to take up the chill before dinner. "'Concluding to set myself in the warm summer air next, "'seeing that what is good for old claret "'is equally good for old age, "'I took up my beehive chair "'to go out into the back court "'when I was stopped by hearing a sound "'like the soft beating of a drum "'on the terrace in front of my lady's residence. "'Going round to the terrace, "'I found three mahogany-colored Indians "'in white linen frocks and trousers "'looking up at the house.' The Indians, as I saw on looking closer, had small hand drums slung in front of them. Behind them stood a little delicate-looking light-haired English boy carrying a bag. I judged the fellows to be strolling conjurers, and the boy with the bag to be carrying the tools of their trade. One of the three, who spoke English and who exhibited, I must own, the most elegant manners, presently informed me that my judgment was right. "'he requested permission to show his tricks "'in the presence of the lady of the house. "'Now, I am not a sour old man. "'I am generally all for amusement, "'and the last person in the world "'to distrust another person "'because he happens to be a few shades darker than myself. "'But the best of us have our weaknesses, "'and my weakness, "'when I know a family plate basket "'to be out on a pantry table, "'is to be instantly reminded of that basket "'by the sight of a strolling stranger "'whose manners are superior to my own.' I accordingly informed the Indian that the lady of the house was out, and I warned him and his party off the premises. He made me a beautiful bow in return, and he and his party went off the premises. On my side, I returned to my beehive chair, and set myself down on the sunny side of the court, and fell, if the truth must be owned, not exactly into a sleep, but into the next best thing to it. I was roused up by my daughter Penelope running out at me as if the house was on fire. What do you think she wanted? She wanted to have the three Indian jugglers instantly taken up, for this reason, namely, that they knew who was coming from London to visit us, and that they meant some mischief to Mr. Franklin Blake. Mr. Franklin's name roused me. I opened my eyes and made my girl explain herself. It appeared that Penelope had just come from our lodge, "'where she had been having a gossip with the lodgekeeper's daughter. "'The two girls had seen the Indians pass out, "'after I had warned them off, followed by their little boy. "'Taking it into their heads that the boy was ill-used by the foreigners, "'for no reason that I could discover, "'except that he was pretty and delicate-looking, "'the two girls had stolen along the inner side of the hedge "'between us and the road, "'and had watched the proceedings of the foreigners on the outer side.' Those proceedings resulted in the performance of the following extraordinary tricks. They first looked up the road, and down the road, and made sure that they were alone. Then they all three faced about, and stared hard in the direction of our house. Then they jabbered and disputed in their own language, and looked at each other like men in doubt. Then they all turned to the little English boy, as if they expected him to help them. And then the chief Indian, who spoke English, said to the boy, "'Hold out your hand.' "'On hearing those dreadful words, "'my daughter Penelope said she didn't know "'what prevented her heart from flying straight out of her. "'I thought privately that it might have been her stays. "'All I said, however, was, "'You make my flesh creep. "'No to bene. "'Women like these little compliments.' "'Well, when the Indian said, "'Hold out your hand,' "'the boy shrunk back and shook his head "'and said he didn't like it. "'The Indian thereupon, "'asked him, not at all unkindly, "'whether he would like to be sent back to London, "'and left where they had found him, 
sleeping in an empty basket in a market, a hungry, ragged, and forsaken little boy. This, it seems, ended the difficulty. The little chap unwillingly held out his hand. Upon that, the Indian took a bottle from his bosom and poured out of it some black stuff, like ink, into the palm of the boy's hand. The Indian, first touching the boy's head and making signs over it in the air, then said, Look! The boy became quite stiff and stood like a statue, looking into the ink in the hollow of his hand. So far it seemed to me to be juggling, accompanied by a foolish waste of ink. I was beginning to feel sleepy again when Penelope's next words stirred me up. The Indians looked up the road and down the road once more, and then the chief Indian said these words to the boy. See the English gentleman from foreign parts. The boy said, I see him. The Indian said, Is it on the road to this house, and on no other, that the English gentleman will travel today? The boy said, It is on the road to this house, and on no other, that the English gentleman will travel today. The Indian put a second question, after waiting a little first. He said, Has the English gentleman got it about him? The boy answered, Also, after waiting a little first, Yes. The Indian put a third and last question. Will the English gentleman come here, as he has promised to come, at the close of the day? The boy said, I can't tell. The Indian asked why. The boy said, I am tired. The mist rises in my head and puzzles me. I can see no more today. With that, the catechism ended. The chief Indian said something in his own language to the other two, pointing to the boy and pointing towards the town, in which, as we afterwards discovered, they were lodged. He then, after making more signs on the boy's head, blew on his forehead and so woke him up with a start. After that, they all went on their way toward the town, and the girls saw them no more. Most things they say have a moral, if you only look for it. What was the moral of this? The moral was, as I thought, first, that the chief juggler had heard Mr. Franklin's arrival talked of among the servants out of doors, and saw his way to making a little money by it. Second, that he and his men and boy, with the view of making the said money, meant to hang about till they saw my lady drive home, and then to come back and foretell Mr. Franklin's arrival by magic. Third, that Penelope had heard them rehearsing their hocus-pocus, like actors rehearsing a play. Fourth, that I should do well to have an eye that evening on the plate-basket. Fifth, that Penelope would do well to cool down and leave me, her father, to doze off again in the sun. That appeared to me to be the sensible view. If you know anything of the ways of young women, you won't be surprised to hear that Penelope wouldn't take it. The moral of the thing was serious, according to my daughter. She particularly reminded me of the Indian's third question. Has the English gentleman got it about him? Oh, father, says Penelope, clasping her hands, don't joke about this. What does it mean? We'll ask Mr. Franklin, my dear, I said. I winked to show I meant that in joke. What on earth should Mr. Franklin know about it? I inquired. Ask him, says Penelope, and see whether he thinks it's a laughing matter, too. With that parting shot, my daughter left me. I settled it with myself, when she was gone, that I really would ask Mr. Franklin, 
"'mainly to set Penelope's mind at rest. "'What was said between us, when I did ask him, "'later on that same day, "'you will find set out fully in its proper place. "'But as I don't wish to raise your expectations "'and then disappoint them, "'I will take leave to warn you here, "'before we go any further, "'that you won't find the ghost of a joke "'in our conversation on the subject of the jugglers. "'To my great surprise, "'Mr. Franklin, like Penelope, "'took the thing seriously.' How seriously you will understand when I tell you that, in his opinion, it meant the Moonstone. We'll return with Chapter 4 of The Moonstone right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 4. I'm truly sorry to detain you over me and my beehive chair. A sleepy old man in a sunny backyard is not an interesting object. I am well aware. But things must be put down in their places, as things actually happen, and you must please to jog on a little while longer with me, in expectation of Mr. Franklin Blake's arrival later in the day. Before I had time to doze off again, after my daughter Penelope had left me, I was disturbed by a rattling of plates and dishes in the servants' hall, which meant that dinner was ready. Taking my own meals in my own sitting-room, I had nothing to do with the servants' dinner, except to wish them a good stomach to it all round, previous to composing myself once more in my chair. I was just stretching my legs when out bounced another woman on me. Not my daughter again, only Nancy, the kitchen maid, this time. I was straight in the middle of her way out, and I observed, as she asked me to let her by, that she had a sulky face, a thing which, as head of the servants, I never allow on principle, to pass me without inquiry. "'What are you turning your back on your dinner for?' I asked. "'What's wrong now, Nancy?' Nancy tried to push by without answering, upon which I rose up and took her by the ear. She is a nice, plump young lass, and it is customary with me to adopt that manner of showing that I personally approve of a girl. "'What's wrong now?' I said once more. "'Rosanna is late again for dinner.' "'says Nancy, and I'm sent to fetch her in. "'All the hard work falls on my shoulders in this house. "'Let me alone, Mr. Bitteredge.' "'The person here mentioned as Rosanna was our second housemaid. "'Having a kind of pity for our second housemaid, "'why, you shall presently know, "'and seeing in Nancy's face "'that she would fetch her fellow-servant in "'with more hard words than might be needful under the circumstances, "'it struck me that I had nothing particular to do.' and that I might as well fetch Rosanna myself, giving her a hint to be punctual in future, which I knew she would take kindly from me. "'Where is Rosanna?' I inquired. "'At the sands, of course,' says Nancy, with a toss of her head. "'She had another of her fainting fits this morning, and she asked to go out and get a breath of fresh air. I have no patience with her.' "'Go back to your dinner, my girl,' I said. "'I have patience with her.' "'and I'll fetch her in.' "'Nancy, who has a fine appetite, looked pleased. "'When she looks pleased, she looks nice. "'When she looks nice, I chuck her under the chin. "'It isn't immorality, it's only habit. "'Well, I took my stick and set off for the sands. "'No, it won't do to set off yet. "'I am sorry again to detain you, "'but you really must hear the story of the sands "'and the story of Rosanna.' For this reason, 
"'that the matter of the diamond touches them both nearly. "'How hard I try to get on with my statement "'without stopping by the way, "'and how badly I succeed. "'But, there, persons and things do turn up "'so vexatiously in this life, "'and will in a manner insist on being noticed. "'Let us take it easy, and let us take it short. "'We shall be in the thick of the mystery soon, "'I promise you. "'Rosanna, to put the person before the thing, "'which is but common politeness, "'was the only new servant in our house. "'About four months before the time I am writing of, "'my lady had been in London, "'and had gone over a reformatory, "'intended to save forlorn women "'from drifting back into bad ways, "'after they get released from prison. "'The matron, seeing my lady took an interest in the place, "'pointed out a girl to her named Rosanna Spearman, "'and told her a most miserable story, "'which I haven't the heart to repeat here, "'for I don't like to be made wretched without any use, "'and no more to you. "'The upshot of it was that Rosanna Spearman had been a thief, "'and not being of the sort that get up companies in the city "'and rob from thousands, instead of only robbing from one, "'the law laid hold of her, "'and the prison and the reformatory followed the lead of the law. "'The matron's opinion of Rosanna was, "'in spite of what she had done, "'that the girl was one in a thousand, "'and that she only wanted a chance to prove herself "'worthy of any Christian woman's interest in her. "'My lady, being a Christian woman, "'if ever there was one yet, "'said to the matron, upon that, "'Rosanna Spearman shall have her chance in my service.' "'In a week afterwards, "'Rosanna Spearman entered this establishment "'as our second housemaid. "'Not a soul was told the girl's story, "'excepting Miss Rachel and me. "'My lady,' doing me the honor to consult me about most things, consulted me about Rosanna. Having fallen a good deal latterly into the late Sir John's way of always agreeing with my lady, I agreed with her heartily about Rosanna Spearman. A fairer chance no girl could have had than was given to this poor girl of ours. None of the servants could cast her past life in her teeth, for none of the servants knew what it had been. She had her wages and her privileges like the rest of them, "'and every now and then a friendly word from my lady, in private, to encourage her. "'In return, she showed herself, I am bound to say, "'well worthy of the kind treatment bestowed upon her. "'Though far from strong, and troubled occasionally with those fainting fits already mentioned, "'she went about her work modestly and uncomplainingly, "'doing it carefully, and doing it well. "'But somehow she failed to make friends among the other women's servants, "'excepting my daughter Penelope.' who was always kind to Rosanna, though never intimate with her. I hardly know what the girl did to offend them. There was certainly no beauty about her to make the others envious. She was the plainest woman in the house, with the additional misfortune of having one shoulder bigger than the other. What the servants chiefly resented, I think, was her silent tongue and her solitary ways. She read or worked in leisure hours when the rest gossiped, and when it came to her turn to go out, Nine times out of ten, she quietly put on her bonnet and had her turn by herself. She never quarreled. She never took offense. She only kept a certain distance, obstinately and civilly, between the rest of them and herself. Add to this that, plain as she was, there was just a dash of something that wasn't like a housemaid, and that was like a lady, about her. It might have been in her voice, or it might have been in her face. All I can say is that the other women pounced on it like lightning the first day she came into the house, 
and said, which was most unjust, that Rosanna Spearman gave herself airs. Having now told the story of Rosanna, I have only to notice one of the many queer ways of this strange girl to get on next to the story of the Sands. Our house is high up on the Yorkshire coast, and close by the sea. We have got beautiful walks all around us, in every direction but one. That one I acknowledge to be a horrid walk. It leads, for a quarter of a mile, through a melancholy plantation of firs, and brings you out between low cliffs on the loneliest and ugliest little bay on all our coast. The sand hills here run down to the sea, and end in two spits of rock jutting out opposite each other, till you lose sight of them in the water. One is called the North Spit, and one the South. Between the two, shifting backwards and forwards at certain seasons of the year, lies the most horrible quicksand on the shores of Yorkshire. At the turn of the tide, something goes on in the unknown deeps below, which sets the whole face of the quicksand shivering and trembling in a manner most remarkable to see, and which has given to it, among the people in our parts, the name of the shivering sand. A great bank, half a mile out, nigh the mouth of the bay, breaks the force of the main ocean coming in from the offing. Winter and summer, when the tide flows over the quicksand, the sea seems to leave the waves behind it on the bank, and rolls its waters in smoothly with a heave, and covers the sand in silence. A lonesome and a horrid retreat, I can tell you. No boat ever ventures into this bay. No children from our fishing village, called Cobb's Hole, ever come here to play. The very birds of the air, as it seems to me, give the shivering sands a wide berth. That a young woman, with dozens of nice walks to choose from, and company to go with her, if she only said, come, should prefer this place, and should sit and work or read in it, all alone, when it's her turn out, I grant you, passes belief. It's true, nevertheless, account for it as you may, that this was Rosanna Spearman's favorite walk, except when she went once or twice to Cobb's Hole to see the only friend she had in our neighborhood, of whom more anon. It's also true that I was now setting off for this same place to fetch the girl into dinner, which brings us round happily to our former point, and starts us fair again on our way to the sands. I saw no sign of the girl in the plantation. When I got out through the sand hills onto the beach, there she was, in her little straw bonnet, and her plain great cloak that she always wore to hide her deformed shoulder as much as might be. There she was, all alone, looking out on the quicksand and the sea. She started when I came up with her, and turned her head away from me, not looking me in the face being another of the proceedings, which, as head of the servants, I never allow, on principle, to pass without inquiry. I turned her round my way, and saw that she was crying. My bandana handkerchief, one of six beauties given to me by my lady, was handy in my pocket. I took it out, and I said to Rosanna, "'Come and sit down, my dear, on the slope of the beach along with me. I'll dry your eyes for you first, and then I'll make so bold as to ask what you've been crying about. When you come to my age, you'll find sitting down on the slope of a beach a much longer job than you think it now.' By the time I was settled, Rosanna had dried her own eyes with a very inferior handkerchief to mine, cheap cambric. She looked very quiet and very wretched 
"'but she sat down by me like a good girl when I told her. "'When you want to comfort a woman by the shortest way, "'take her on your knee. "'I thought of this golden rule. "'But there, Rosanna wasn't Nancy, "'and that's the truth of it. "'Now tell me, my dear,' I said, "'what are you crying about?' "'About the years that are gone, Mr. Betteredge,' says Rosanna quietly. "'My past life still comes back to me sometimes.' "'Come, come, my girl,' I said. "'Your past life is all sponged out. "'Why can't you forget it?' "'She took me by one of the lappets of my coat. "'I'm a slovenly old man, "'and a good deal of my meat and drink gets splashed about on my clothes. "'Sometimes one of the women—' "'and sometimes another, cleans me of my grease. "'The day before, Rosanna had taken out a spot for me "'on the lappet of my coat. "'With a new composition, warranted to remove anything. "'The grease was gone, but there was a little dull place "'left on the nap of the cloth where the grease had been. "'The girl pointed to that place and shook her head. "'The stain is taken off,' she said. "'But the place shows, Mr. Betteredge.' THE PLACE SHOWS. A remark which takes a man unawares by means of his own coat is not an easy remark to answer. Something in the girl herself, too, made me particularly sorry for her just then. She had nice brown eyes, plain as she was in other ways, and she looked at me with a sort of respect for my happy old age and my good character, as things forever out of her own reach, which made my heart heavy for our second housemaid. Not feeling myself able to comfort her, there was only one other thing to do, and that thing was to take her in to dinner. Help me up, I said. You're late for dinner, Rosanna, and I've come to fetch you in. You, Mr. Betteridge? says she. They told Nancy to fetch you, I said, but I thought you might like your scolding better, my dear, if it came from me. Instead of helping me up, "'The poor thing stole her hand into mine "'and gave it a little squeeze. "'She tried hard to keep from crying again "'and succeeded, for which I respected her. "'You're very kind, Mr. Betteredge,' she said. "'I don't want any dinner today. "'Let me bide a little longer here.' "'What makes you like to be here?' I asked. "'What is it that brings you everlastingly "'to this miserable place?' "'Something draws me to it. "'says the girl, making images with her finger in the sand. "'I try to keep away from it, and I can't. "'Sometimes,' says she in a low voice, "'as if she was frightened at her own fancy. "'Sometimes, Mr. Betteredge, "'I think that my grave is waiting for me here. "'There's a roast mutton and suet pudding waiting for you,' says I, "'going to dinner directly. "'This is what comes, Rosanna.' "'of thinking on an empty stomach. "'I spoke severely, "'being naturally indignant "'at my time of life "'to hear a young woman of five and twenty "'talking about her latter end. "'She didn't seem to hear me. "'She put her hand on my shoulder "'and kept me where I was, "'sitting by her side. "'I think the place has laid a spell on me,' "'she said. "'I dream of it night after night. "'I think of it when I sit stitching at my work.' "'You know I'm grateful, Mr. Betteredge. "'You know I tried to deserve your kindness "'and my lady's confidence in me. "'But I wonder sometimes 
"'whether the life here is too quiet and too good for such a woman as I am. "'After all, after all I've gone through, Mr. Betteredge, "'after all I've gone through, "'it's more lonely to me to be among the other servants, "'knowing I am not what they are, than it is to be here. "'My lady doesn't know. "'The matron at the reformatory doesn't know. "'What a dreadful reproach honest people are in themselves to a woman like me.' "'Don't scold me. There's a dear good man. I do my work, don't I? "'Please not to tell my lady I am discontented. I am not. "'My mind's unquiet sometimes, that's all.' "'She snatched her hand off my shoulder and suddenly pointed down to the quicksand. "'Look,' she said. "'Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it terrible? "'I've seen it dozens of times.' "'and it's always as new to me "'as if I'd never seen it before.' "'I looked where she pointed. "'The tide was on the turn, "'and the hard sand began to shiver. "'The broad brown face of it heaved slowly "'and then dimpled and quivered all over. "'Do you know what it looks like to me?' "'says Rosanna, catching me by the shoulder again. "'It looks as if it had hundreds of suffocating people under it, "'all struggling to get to the surface, "'and all sinking lower and lower in the dreadful deeps. "'Throw a stone in, Mr. Betteredge. "'Throw a stone in, and let's see the sand suck it down.' "'Here was unwholesome talk. "'Here was an empty stomach feeding on an unquiet mind. "'My answer, a pretty sharp one, "'in the poor girl's own interest, I promise you, "'was at my tongue's end.' "'when it was snapped short off on a sudden "'by a voice among the sandhills "'shouting for me by my name. "'Betteredge!' cries the voice. "'Where are you?' "'Here!' I shouted out in return, "'without a notion in my mind of who it was. "'Rosanna started to her feet "'and stood looking towards the voice. "'I was just thinking of getting on my own legs next "'when I was staggered by a sudden change "'in the girl's face.' Her complexion turned to a beautiful red, which I had never seen in it before. She brightened all over with a kind of speechless and breathless surprise. "'Who is it?' I asked. Rosanna gave me back my own question. "'Oh, who is it?' she said softly, more to herself than to me. I twisted round on the sand and looked behind me. There, coming out on us from among the hills— "'was a bright-eyed young gentleman, "'dressed in a beautiful fawn-colored suit, "'with gloves and hat to match, "'with a rose in his buttonhole, "'and a smile on his face "'that might have set the shivering sand itself "'smiling at him in return. "'Before I could get on my legs, "'he plumped down on the sand by the side of me, "'put his arm round my neck, foreign fashion, "'and gave me a hug that fairly squeezed "'the breath out of my body. "'Dear old Betteridge,' says he, "'I owe you seven and sixpence.' "'Now do you know who I am?' "'Lord bless us and save us. "'Here, four good hours before we expected him, "'was Mr. Franklin Blake. "'Before I could say a word, "'I saw Mr. Franklin, "'a little surprised to all appearance, "'look up from me to Rosanna. "'Following his lead, "'I looked at the girl, too. "'She was blushing of a deeper red than ever, "'seemingly at having caught Mr. Franklin's eye.' and she turned and left us suddenly 
in a confusion quite unaccountable to my mind, without either making a kerchief to the gentleman or saying a word to me. Very unlike your usual self, a civiler and better-behaved servant, in general, you never met with. That's an odd girl, says Mr. Franklin. I wonder what she sees in me to surprise her. I suppose, sir, I answered, drolling on our young gentleman's continental education. It's the varnish from foreign parts. I set down here Mr. Franklin's careless question, and my foolish answer, as a consolation and encouragement to all stupid people, it being, as I have remarked, a great satisfaction to our inferior fellow creatures to find that their betters are, on occasions, no brighter than they are. Neither Mr. Franklin, with his wonderful foreign training, nor I, with my age, experience, and natural mother wit, had the ghost of an idea of what Rosanna Spearman's unaccountable behavior really meant. She was out of our thoughts, poor soul, before we had seen the last flutter of her little gray cloak among the sandhills. "'And what of that?' you will ask, naturally enough. "'Read on, good friend, as patiently as you can, "'and perhaps you'll be as sorry for Rosanna Spearman as I was "'when I found out the truth.'" Thanks for joining us today for Chapters 3 and 4 of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins at 1001 Stories for the Road. If you're enjoying our story, please do stop a moment and send us a review. We would appreciate that, as we always do, very, very much. Until next Sunday at noon, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road and the Moonstone, and we'll be back soon.